Welcome folks, Stephen Gray here again. You are either watching Stephen Gray Vision YouTube channel or you are listening to this on anchor.fm, that's A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M, or one of its spin-offs such as Spotify, iTunes, and a few others. And in the briefest terms possible, the whole purpose or the far and away primary purpose for doing these interviews and occasional little rambles from me is uh, to uh, help support, to contribute to an awakening process, a healing and awakening process, both individually and collectively, which many of us see as both essential and at this point urgent for humanity and for that purpose I have I'm very pleased to uh, be talking with uh, a friend and colleague who's done some uh, well more than some remarkable work uh, on behalf of uh, uh, education about drugs and drug policy etc etc <clears throat> excuse me Mark Hayden uh, I, I have a very short bio I want to share with you but I could actually skip it um, by just telling you that he was awarded the Queen's Diamond Jubilee Medal for Drug Policy Reform. And that kind of sums it up. In other words, Mark Hayden has been one of the great advocates and activists on behalf of drug policy reform in Canada, here in Canada. Uh, he's worked uh, for addiction services uh, for 28 years in counseling and supervisory roles. He, I don't know if you still are, Mark, but maybe you can correct me at the end of this short bio, uh, has been and maybe still is an adjunct professor at the University of British Columbia School of Public and Population Health. He was for a number of years, and I don't know exactly how long, but um, uh, the chairman and executive director of MAPS Canada, that's the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Uh, Mark has published on the issue of drug control policy and psychedelics in quite a few journals, many actually, um, and he's provided public education on drugs and drug policy for over 30 years. Also presented at a number of conferences and training events in many countries, including being um, almost a resident speaker of our Spirit Plant Medicine Conference here in Vancouver. So, welcome Mark. Why, thank you, Stephen. That's a very nice introduction. Your Good. kind words are appreciated. All right. <laughs> um, yes, so, oh, um, and he is also the author, I'll tell you this right now, because this is what we're going to be talking about, the contents of this book, which I'm holding up right now, called Manual for Psychedelic Guides. And uh, it's it says that it's written by Mark Hayden with contributions by a number of other people who I'll read just in case you are listening and not uh, watching this, listening to. Uh, it, uh, with contributions by uh, Dr. Birgitta Woods, Lydia Martinovich, Bradley Foster, and Dr. Devin Christie. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, very important book, I would say. And in fact, that's going to be my first question for you, Mark, and uh, for our audience. Uh, all the questions that I'm going to ask Mark today are going to be based on that book. So, uh, Mark, I think I have a pretty good idea for why this book is important and why, what the need is for this book, but I would like to hear it from you. So please answer that question. Sure. So the question is, why did I write it? Yes. Why is it important? Why, why did you want to do this? So I, I was aware that Nobody had actually written a book about how psychedelic guiding, psychedelic therapy, psychedelic presence actually works. Uh, the, there are a huge number of underground therapists who write books about their, their work, and they tell lots of stories. There's tons of stories about what they do, but they don't actually ever say what they did, how they set people up for the experience, how they screened people, how they managed the session, how they managed things that went wrong. And so this book is new. Nobody's ever written this book before. There's a lot of training programs that are sprouting up around the planet, and there's no textbooks for them that sort of guides them in terms of how they provide training for this work. So I've written it for both people who want to be in the legal world and are participating in trainings like MAPS training, etc., but I've also written it for folks who are in the underground because the underground is a vulnerability to our legalization process. Underground therapists are sometimes fabulous and sometimes absolutely terrible. And so raising the bar reduces 
the chance that there will be a lot of media attention to things that have really gone wrong in our community by people who have done it very unskillfully. So providing the information widely about how to do it skillfully, I think is, is an important offering. Wonderful. Yes, thank you. Um, so it's kind of self-evident, but I think it would be useful for perhaps listeners and viewers who are somewhat less familiar with this kind of work in general to define what a psychedelic guide is. You know, for example, we have, uh, there's a term called sitter, which is at another level. Um, and then there's guide and then is guide, for example, the same as psychedelic psychotherapist, for example. But how would you define a psychedelic guide? Well, I chose the word guide quite explicitly. And those were the three choices, psychedelic therapy, psychedelic guide, or psychedelic sitter. And I wanted one word to be reflected throughout. And I chose the word guide because I thought the idea, the, the word therapist just struck me as being overactive. Mm. Now, when we think about therapists generally, there's a lot of back and forth. There's a lot of engagement and a lot of conversation. So I, I really didn't think therapist was quite the right word. And sitter was too inactive. <laughs> no, what do you do when you're sitting? Well, not very much of anything. So, so the word guide struck me as being the right amount of activity. So I chose the word guide very consciously as a, as a, as a, a way of thinking about the work that I think resonates with the appropriate degree of engagement. Okay, good. And uh, toward that, uh, or by way of elaborating on that, you've written in the book something called the six competencies. Do you remember all six of them? And can you speak about as many as you remember? Sure. Well, I'd like to do a deep bow at the waist to Janice Phelps, who I was quoting a paper that she'd written about the six competencies. So Janice Phelps um, is the manager leader of um, CIIS, which is one of the big training programs that happens. There's, there's, a, there's a fair number of training programs and more coming online every day. But I really appreciate her work and her contributions. So I'll, I'll talk about the six company competencies that she discussed and maybe elaborate on them a little bit. So the first one is empathetic abiding presence. Empathetic abiding presence. So what does that actually mean? Empathetic means you're able to tune in and resonate with people's emotional states. You're able to be in a place of empathy, which is a place of connection and understanding, an understanding of emotions. Abiding means you stay there. You know, you, you participate for a, an extended period of time as you're in this place of empathy. You're hanging out in the place of empathy for a long time. And the word presence is frequent throughout the book. In fact, it's interesting because people talk about this work and they talk about holding space. That's kind of the, the current popular term when people describe what they're doing for somebody else. I will hold space for you. Personally, I don't like that. It doesn't, it doesn't work for me because you're not actually holding and it's not space. That you're, it's, it's not holding space. It's being presence. It's being present or, be, or participating in the experience of presence. It's about who you are and bringing that in terms of warmth and genuineness and, and compassion and solidity and groundedness and bringing that calm, abiding, empathetic awareness to the experience. So that's the first one. The second one is trust enhancement. So but let's just play with the word trust a little bit. If you think about who you trust in this world, you tend to trust people that you can predict, and you tend to trust people that don't aren't going to hurt you, people that you are non-harmful to you. So you have to offer both of those. You have to be predictable. And predictability is about a calming presence, predictability. So you're not going to do anything that the person who is experiencing goes, wow, that was a surprise. So there's a predictability. And there's a safety that goes along with the experience. So trust enhancement. You have to be able to build trust. And the building of trust starts right at the very beginning. People need to trust you as they first meet you. And certainly as you're sitting down through the experience with people, that trusting bond, that connection piece has to be there. And it has to be there all the way along. 
The third one is spiritual intelligence. Now, it's interesting. I, I think we're all working on our spiritual intelligence, and certainly I am, and, and trying to understand what spirituality means through the lens of psychedelics. Because many people say, you know, I had an amazing spiritual experience. It's very common with the experience when you have a psychedelic experience. But what does that actually mean? Personally, the, the, the book that opened my eyes most widely is the one that I read fairly recently by Chris Bache, which is LSD in the Mind of the Universe, Diamonds from Heaven. <laughs> work and he just describes his experience of both humanity and then eventually as he walked the path of psychedelics long enough he, he found a place of spirituality that i think is amazing and profound so really understanding the different manifestations of spirituality that happen because it's not one thing you know sometimes o oceanic boundlessness is is one way of measuring it there's these these research questionnaires you know the mystical experience questionnaire is one of them and, and if you look at the the the, the points on the scale it, it's actually kind of interesting you know all i experienced all as one so sort of understanding viscerally what it's like to have a spiritual experience and being able to understand resonate with support appreciate and discuss what a psychedelic experience is like is actually really important for a psychedelic guide. Um, knowledge, knowledge of substances, you know, what dosage does what, what are the contraindications, who shouldn't be taking it, what, what medications you shouldn't be on. So there's some, there's some facts that you need to have to work in this space. Um, Self-awareness and ethical integrity self-awareness and ethical integrity. So let's talk about those separately. So self-awareness, because one of the experiences that happens intensely during a psychedelic experience when you're the guide is people project on you. Their issues in their unconscious mind come out and they see that happening on you. You become their dad, their mom, their abuser, their partner, their child, their whatever. That you, you become something that is part of their own history. And they project that on you. They, they start to relate to you with that as the assumption. So understanding how that works and being able to stay in one sense of self is actually really important. Who am I in this experience is a very important part of self-awareness. So where, what do I bring to this? What are my trigger points? What, am I, what do I get uncomfortable with? And how do I manage my own discomfort is are really, really important questions because psychedelic guiding is difficult. And if you're really gonna be there and do it skillfully, understanding who you are and being able to work with your own issues around your own personality and, and attributes is really important. And then ethical integrity, you know, there's, there's um, a lot of examples of people that behave unethically in the world of psychedelics. Um, and I, I think there's a number of reasons why that occurs. And I'll just to briefly mention one, I'll, I'll talk about it probably more later, but the huge connection that happens between the sitter and the person going through the experience, the bonding experience um, can be quite wonderful, but it can also really go wrong. And, um, and so, you know, let, let's elaborate on that later, but, but understanding how you sit, stand in the place of ethical integrity, how you do boundaries and how you stay in that place is so, so important because quite frankly, it often goes wrong. So I think part of my process in writing this manual was to deal with some of the problematic issues that I've seen in our community because Quite frankly, we've had, we've had problems. We've had problems both within the context of our research, our legal research, and I've certainly seen problems happen in the underground communities. And so, um, so I think identifying the reasons for those problems and being able to have open discussions about them is really, really important. And so partly I, I um, wrote the book as a, as a cautionary tale around why quite frankly, some people shouldn't do this work and, and what are the problems and how do we think about them and how can we prevent them? And certainly having really clear 
understanding of, of what, what are the ethical principles that we have to have going into this work and how do we stay in that place is really important. And the final one is um, proficiency with complementary, let me say that again, <laughs> proficiency with complementary techniques. I said it, oh my God. And um, so working with, you know, body work, you know, pressure point work, um, you know, there's a whole variety of different types of therapies that can be incredibly helpful. Um, family systems work is again very helpful. There's many of them, and so understanding and bringing a whole bag of therapeutic um, practices to this process, and, and understanding how a variety of different therapeutic practices interact with psychedelic work, is also really important. I'm assuming that much of this work will be done by people who have had long histories of therapeutic practices, and and how those practices fit, or in some cases actually don't fit. Um, with the psychotherapeutic process or the guiding process that happens. Those are the six. <laughs> well, that's excellent. That's very clear. Uh, so uh, a, a, a ridiculously short summary of what I just heard from you might be, or a couple of the key points might be, that the kind of people do, well, as, as you said earlier at the beginning of our conversation, uh, it's about raising the bar for this kind of work. And what I'm hearing, among other things, from those six competencies is that uh, it requires people with a lot of maturity, a lot of spiritual maturity, high ethical sense, and a wide background uh, and knowledge. So that's, that's really good to hear. Uh, so on that note, let me elaborate on that a little bit. So sure. what, what you didn't say mm -hmm. is often what I've heard is people who go and do a couple of ayahuasca experiences and then they say, I've been called by the medicine to no, work, yeah. I'm now ready. No, no, no. You know, it's, it's appalling to me that people don't see it as a skill that they develop over a long period of time, mm -hmm. supervision and practice and knowledge and you know, quite frankly, oversight and peer support and really working with others to develop the skill and seeing it as a long-term practice as people develop the skill and they develop their own maturity through the process of developing that skill. So it isn't about, you know, the plant has called me and now I'm ready, mm -hmm. I, I can do the work. No, it's about, I think I would like to take my maturity that I've developed in a long practice that I've had as whatever, a psychedelic psychotherapist, as a, as a therapist, in the traditional terms, and then apply those skills to a new field of psychedelic psychotherapy and really spend a lot of time talking to mentors who've been doing this for a long period of time and getting a lot of support from others and really being willing to share the challenges that I have and, and develop the practice over time with energy, effort, knowledge, and ongoing skill development. Well said, as always, Mark, uh, and I agree completely with all that, and especially the uh, early part, not, well, I, I think it's an, a particular concern that you uh, outlined a few moments ago there about people just jumping in quickly with that. You know, one of my kind of common things that I think or sometimes say is that in our so-called kind of, you know, modern cultures, whatever you want to call these more urbanized technological cultures, uh, there's a general problem in my mind, which is that people tend to not know what they don't know and be and act uh, you know precipitously you know based on oh I know a little bit you know we had a we we had a kind of a joke I was living with the hippies up in the Kootenays back in the 70s you know and people were having to discover things you know like how to build a house or whatever that they'd never done and there was nobody around to help them so we had a we had a kind of a saying which was you've done it once you're an expert but this does not work at all with medicine work like this so um, you've kind of talked about it already, but one of the questions I had noted uh, that you specifically stated in the book is something about four main problems that would generally disqualify someone as a potential guide. Can you speak about those, please? Sure. I mean, as I said, you know, I've observed problems within both our legal research community and problems outside, you know, in the underground world. And when I talk to other people who are, you know, playing my role in other sites, cities, countries, um, and we discuss the problems that we observe, they tend to be consistent. 
the kind of problems that I see are the problems that many people see. And, and I want to, before I talk about the problems, I want to talk about the solution. And, and I've, I've done quite a bit of pondering is what do I actually recommend to deal with these problems? First, first of all, is open discussion. I think we should be able to talk about the four issues that I'm going to talk about. And that's why they're in the book to say, you know, this is an open discussion. We can have this discussion because when you don't talk about something, it tends to fester. But the other solution that I have is I think people should work in the context of teams. I think that, you know, at very least there should be two therapists that work together in, in the place of doing psychedelic guiding, often a male and a female. But I think you need more than that. I think you need colleagues I mean, you need quite a few colleagues because colleges, you know, like the College of Physicians and Surgeons and hopefully one day the College of Psychedelic Guides won't deal with really minor issues. They deal with major issues. If I look at what the College of Physicians and Surgeons deals with, they don't deal with minor transgressions. They deal with the smoking gun kind of issues, with the you know horrible offenses that are obvious to everybody. But it's so really what we want is people that will deal with sort of minor infractions before they grow into major infractions. And the best way to do that is to be accountable to your peers. So that means you have staff meetings. And you talk about your practice at staff meetings with colleagues who, and you work with different colleagues. I also think, it's funny, I, I, I diverge a bit from the, um, from the model that the MAPS have. The MAPS folks have um, a special relationship. They, they identify dyads. And so there's a male and a female that kind of work together very closely over a period of time. And personally, I actually, my, my own opinion is, I, I think you should be able to work with many people. I think the, a team approach would be better. And there's no assumption of a special relationship and everybody should be able to work with anybody. Hmm. And I think the, the, when you're accountable and you're watched by many people, you're less likely to have problems than if you're just working within a dyad, because things can go wrong in the context of a dyad. You know, they develop a, this thing that develops and it's much less likely to go wrong if there's many people that are working together. So my solution to the problems I'm about to address is essentially lots of colleagues and lots of, lots of relationships with your colleagues and lots of working with them in different ways. But um, the, so what I do in the book is I identify four problems that I have observed. And uh, I, the, the, great, the great therapist syndrome, the predator, the overbonding problem and trauma projection. And I want to talk about each one of those four separately. So it, it's interesting. I, when I previous job to this um, was I worked in the addiction services and I supervised therapists for most of my career for decades. And most of my staff were wonderful, like fabulous, like really warm, heartfelt, compassionate, wonderful people who just did a great job. And I just appreciated them so immensely. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally we'd have a problem. And the problem would often manifest as what I call the great therapist syndrome. Because what happens in all therapy, that is, and all of these problems are amplified in the world of psychedelic space. So what happens in all therapy is if you're going to bare your soul to somebody, if you're going to be really, really vulnerable, you're going to go and take a really big problem that you're struggling with to a therapist, you have to believe that therapist is absolutely fabulous. Like somewhere between human and angel, like they're not, they're better than human. They're really an incredible human being. That's just an important belief that you have to have if you're going to be that vulnerable with somebody. Now, most therapists take that with a grain of salt. They understand that's just part of the work and it's fine. It's not a problem and it's just, it's just the way it is. And they don't take it personally. Some therapists are like sponges to that belief that clients bring them and they really believe they're special, like really special and they're better than all of their colleagues and they become the great therapist syndrome. And the great therapist syndrome is, is a problem because it sends the wrong message to the person who's lying down. It sends the wrong message to the participant. Because if the, if the person believes they are the great therapist, they don't accurately see the inner healer of the participant. And really that's the fundamental model. We are there to witness somebody else healing themselves. We aren't there to fix people. And great therapists show up wanting to fix people. So it's actually the wrong message. It's a problematic process in the process of healing. 
The second problem is psychedelic work attracts predators and it attracts predators in a variety of contexts. Predators are people who like to have power over others. They're attracted to the level of vulnerability that happens in psychedelic space. And it's a problem because they, they're not there to be compassionate, empathetic, and understanding and kind. They're there to meet their own needs for power over others. And, and they're a problem in our field. The third one is the overbonding problem because psychedelics are bonding agents. And that's partly why they're wonderful. That's partly why they're fabulous. They, they reduce the boundaries between people. And, and that's to some extent why the therapy is so effective because it allows people to connect. And as you know, the greatest predictor of a positive outcome of a therapeutic process is the alliance between the therapist and the participant. And it doesn't matter what kind of therapy that is. And psychedelics amplify that. Now, mostly it's great. But when overbonding occurs, when, when there's a relationship that starts to get formed, and it can be an emotional relationship, it can be a sexual relationship, it can be a physical relationship, whatever, that relationship then becomes a problem. So the overbonding problem is, is when boundaries aren't clarified and there's ethical transgressions because of the overbonding problem. And the final one is trauma projection. So what we find is a lot of people get attracted to the world of therapy because they have their own trauma history and they've been engaged in the healing process for themselves and they bring a trauma background to the world of therapy. If they've done their work, it's fine. In fact, they can often be very empathetic for people who have a trauma history because they've been there. And, and so they can be ideal therapists. The concept of the wounded healer is, is a beautiful model. But if they haven't done their own healing, then what happens is they project their trauma on others. And they tend to look around the room at staff meetings and what they see is predators and victims. Oh. And they act that out in staff meetings. And it's difficult when you have somebody with a big trauma history in your staff meeting who's acting out that perception that they have of the world. But also they tend to not accurately see the issues of the participants because they have their own trauma filter going on. So they will emphasize and, and exaggerate and work with that predator victim thing as it's discussed. That's kind of what they'll see and what they'll amplify. So they'll no longer be neutral and they'll be kind of resonating with the trauma piece and they may not see things accurately because of their own trauma background. So those four issues, I think, need to be discussed. You know, the great therapist syndrome, the predator, the overbonding problem, and trauma projection happens and will continue to happen. And so really, partly I wrote this book to give us a language where we can talk about that because all of that can be worked with. You know, you can, you can help people to evolve and mature and change and, and grow. And when they bring those kind of issues to the table, then it, um, it's something that I think open discussion in staff meetings is actually quite helpful. And between supervisors and staff, I think that it, it, it opens the, the door for discussion. Well, you've laid out a really clear picture there um, about the kind of qualifications and disqualifications and et cetera uh, for the therapists, or pardon me, the guides themselves. Uh, now I'd like to ask you a little bit about the participants. You've spoken in the book about red and green flags in the screening process. Could you go into that, please? Sure. I, I won't go through all of them. It's a, it's a long list. Okay issues that you need to assess for, but I'll, I'll just talk about some of them and, and some of the problems that I've seen. So certainly in my work, let, let me just go, go back a notch. So in my work, when I was an addiction services supervisor, I made a deal with my staff and the deal was if they can't see somebody, if, if they just can't, they're just unable to sit in a room with somebody because it's too challenging. I will see that person. So I will take the most difficult clients and I'll see them all. And my staff really appreciated that. But I mean, I, I'm the supervisor, so I, I have to, you know, demonstrate skill. And I have to also, because I don't have a big caseload, I'm doing a lot of administrative work. I may as well see the most difficult people. So really what I got on my caseload were all of the personality disorders. And... I became really interested 
in how you work with people that have things like borderline personality disorder, because their lives are incredibly difficult because they can often offend anybody. And they're really difficult to be with. You know, they're, they're challenging folks to sit in a room with sometimes. And so if there's gonna be one problem that, that's the most profound and difficult challenge that our field will face, it's dealing with people with personality disorders. And generally speaking, personality disorders are understood by psychiatry to be inflexible. You, you can't heal them is how psychiatry sees it. Now, I would be fascinated to know if maybe psychedelics can help. You know, I, I don't know. There's, there's a slight bit of an indication that some personality attributes can be changed with psychedelic use, but, but we're not there. Science isn't even close to being able to look at how that would work. So I, I think, you know, to start, we need to just understand how difficult it is to work with that population and some of the problems that are going to happen. I mean, certainly I'm, I'm reflecting back on my work in, in the addiction services is often the folks that would come with the most, the highest level of desperation. You must help me now. It's urgent. Help, help, help. I really need your, that urgent level of request. And if you respond to the urgency and you see them in their office and you make a suggestion, immediately there's a reason why that suggestion isn't going to work. So it's the, the, the desperate help requesting service refusers hmm. is, is kind of how I understand borderline personality disorders. And, and they, because they're so desperate, people often show up at this work who are very kind and empathetic and understanding, and they resonate with that level of desperation. And so they say yes, so these folks get in, but we can't help them often. And and I, I'm not sure I'm, I'm not sure whether psychedelics could ever help them. But certainly, if often what they bring personality those particular personality disorders bring is they they will love you at first, and they hate their last therapist. And so when they come to you and they say, "Oh my God, you're the one that's going to heal me." and my last therapist was a huge problem, you kind of know that you're in the not too distant future going to be the last therapist that was the problem. And so you don't want to play that role. So really not working with personality disorders is really a good way to start this work because it's very, very challenging work. And mostly I don't think we're going to be able to help them, but that may change. But certainly as this field starts, I think it's a good one to kind of avoid that particular personality disorder. And, uh, but they're quite difficult to assess for. And in the book, I make some recommendations as how to, how to assess for that. Another issue that I'd like to address is what happens when you heal somebody and in their healing process, they suddenly understand that the relationship they're in is the wrong relationship for them and they need to leave. So they go back to their partner and they say, I'm done. The partner is pissed and they're pissed at you. Mm -hmm. So the revelation and the huge insight then becomes a problem for the therapist. And I think really understanding that and understanding that in context. So as you screen people, you don't just ask about, you know, who they are and their background, but you also ask what is their context and are, is the context of their lives supportive or not supportive of this work because they're going to go back and you don't want to go back to either a partner that's not supportive or a family that kind of mocks you for this revelation that you've had and it doesn't matter what the revelation is maybe you have a revelation about you know a problematic relationship you had with your mother and so you want to kind of talk about that and, and if you get mocked in response um, that's actually a problem you know you'll often go back to people with less defenses and less boundaries. And, and you go back to a family environment where you're vulnerable and open. And if that isn't understood, and that becomes, quite frankly, you become attacked for it, it's, it's really problematic. So really understanding where you return to at the end of the psychedelic experience, I think is really important. Those are a few oh. thoughts. Oh, okay, sure. I wasn't sure if there were more coming or not. Um, so off the so, top of my head. Yeah, no, that's great. So 
Uh, I don't actually recall, to be honest, if you discuss this in any detail in the book, but I think it's an important thing if you're willing to talk about it a lot. I know there's no one way to, you know, slice the beast, uh, of course, but could you talk a little bit about what might be a standard or typical or even effective uh, protocol, including, uh, say, you know, pre-sessions and the maybe go into, if you don't mind, go into the, you know, how a typical session might unfold, and then the integration or follow-up aspect of it as well. Sure. Okay. So there's two steps for the the beginning, and the, the beginning is screening. So screening means who's in, who's out, you know, so understanding, you know, and I have my checklist of, of, you know, red flags and green flags. So you have to go through the screening process. So it's, it's really just sort of methodical and understanding, am I going to be able to help this person or, or not? Will problems happen? So the screening process is the first step. But once people have been screened in, then the preparatory sessions start. And the preparatory sessions are both getting to know the person's issues. You know, what, what, what do you bring into this place? You know, what are, do you have a trauma history? What's that like for you? What are your issues? But it's more than that. It's building the alliance. It's building the trust. It's building the, the ability to have a therapeutic or a guiding relationship with this person. So helping people to understand that you know what you're doing, you're calm abiding presence and they will trust you is part of it but it's more than that it's also setting people up for the experience because one of the things that happens with certainty with some psychedelics is is an anxiety process so really you 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 have to develop the ability to essentially intervene if that's not maybe not quite the right word let's play with that in a moment but but certainly be there in the process of somebody having a, an intense anxiety experience and essentially they need to trust that you're calm they need to trust that you're completely there and your presence and you're going to make suggestions to them in this place you know, breathe, breathe deeply. You're going to speak very calmly. You may hold the person's hand and just really reassure them deeply. You know, go with it, go with the flow. It's okay. Trust the medicine. And, and they need to hear you. The next question I wanted to ask you, which I hope follows from some of the questions we've been discussing, is could you talk about a typical or standard or what you might call effective uh, protocol for the whole journey with the guide altogether and also perhaps part b of that question what might a session look like sure so i i, I see the process as having four parts screening preparatory the session and integration so and that can repeat itself so those four parts can happen sequentially um so let's talk about screening screening is essentially who shouldn't be in the session. So it's basically screening out and screening in. Who, who can I help and who can't I help? And part, mostly the screening is a checklist, you know, certain um, psychological issues or psychiatric issues are probably inappropriate, um, but also the level of comfort and, and the, the level of rapport is also a screening clue. You know, if you can't develop a pretty deep rapport with somebody fairly quickly where you're talking about real issues, um, that's a screening out issue. So the screening process is whether you're going to provide the service to somebody. And then once the person is in, then there's the preparatory sessions. And preparatory sessions are about building a relationship with the person where you can have deep, trusting conversations. But it's also setting people up with tools that they can use during the psychedelic session. So let's talk about those separately. The, the, prep, the, the relationship piece is really important. You need to be able to trust. You need to be able to have very real discussions with people. You need to, when the unconscious mind becomes active and people become incredibly vulnerable and self-disclosing, you have to set yourself up for that level of intimacy to be completely acceptable. So. The, the beginning part of the preparatory work is starting to work with that level of intimacy. 
It's also establishing boundaries. You know, what is appropriate touch and what is inappropriate touch is a, a very important question to have in advance. Where are the boundaries? So obviously there's no sexual touching. And so that isn't part of it, but yes, you know, people will, can hold hands, that is touching. So there's appropriate touching and non-appropriate touching. And so having an open and transparent, clear discussion about that in part of the preparatory process is important. So talking about, you know, projection, for example, you know, what happens when, you know, I become your dad or your mom or your abuser or your whoever. So, and is that okay? Is it okay to see that, to see me through the lens of your personal history? And the answer is yes, it is, it's fine. And, and we need to talk about how to make that safe and how that's okay. And that's part of the work, the healing process. The, the, the process of, um, of working with specific tools and how it works, like anxiety, for example. Anxiety is not uncommon. Certainly with some psychedelics, it can be quite intense. So management of anxiety is partly about the relationship that we've developed. And when I say, when I hold your hand and I say, trust the flow, go with it, allow this to happen, you're safe, you're okay, you're doing fabulously. And I do that in a very calm and connecting way, people hear it. They hear my calmness, they hear my groundedness, they, they hear my reassurance that it's absolutely fine to be feeling this unpleasant experience. And then they just dive back into it and everything's fine. But that comes from a relationship that comes from understanding of my role, that comes from a willingness to let the guide in and, and, and trust the guide fully. That's what preparatory work is all about. And that's so important for the process. There are also other tools, you know, um, I, I, I have this, this analogy that I work with, with people that I, I think is very helpful. And the analogy is the psychedelic experience is a bit like canoeing in a canyon. Like there are different canoe trips that you can do and canoeing in a canyon canoe trip is unique because there's no way out other than down, down the river of time. You know, you can't just go find a road because there's this huge wall of rock between you and the rest of the world. So a canyon canoe trip and the psychedelic experience are similar in that you are committed to the experience. There's only one way out. Um, in canyons also there's a the experience of, of the wind often winds the canyon that I've done is, is in the desert and there's a huge wind factor and the wind can blow you all over the place. So the analogy in psychedelic space is the, the set and setting. So the environment, the music, the, the art on the walls, the comfort of the bed, the, the environment has a huge impact. The environments have an impact in a canyon and environments have an impact in psychedelic space. And then there's the fact that I have a paddle, you know, I can paddle in a canyon, you know, I can go left and right. And I go, you know, while the current is carrying me down, I also make choices with my paddle as to where I go. And in psychedelic space, you also make choices. You make choices about where you go. Maybe you don't want to look at this particular issue in your mind and you do want to look at this other issue and you do actually make choices. And so acknowledging that choice is important. And then the fourth one is in the canyon, sometimes the going gets a little bit rough and you run into whitewater and it's turbulent and maybe even your, your boat capsizes and oh my gosh, you now have a problem on your hands. And so in a canyon, you have life jackets and you've got all your food wrapped up in dry bags. So you're prepared, you're prepared and you can manage this difficult situation in psychedelic space. It's your breath, it's your breath. It's just simply going back to your breath and allowing yourself to manage this turbulence by breathing long, slow, deep breaths. And so practicing breathing in a relaxing way, long, slow, deep breaths with the participant before it happens and talking about you know, that analogy, and that's a context for bringing up the breathing process is incredibly useful in psychedelic space. So, oh, are you done with that one? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. So uh, let me see. There's a few things that I want oh, to ask you about. I, I, actually, oh, go ahead. That was just the prep session. We, we didn't talk about the uh, how you run the session and how you do the integration afterwards. Okay. So running the session, you know, you bring people into the session. I believe it's really helpful before you take the medicine is you review some of the basics. 
So you ask them, for example, their understanding, you have a checklist and the checklist is all in the book, but things like, you know, how do you understand the rules? We have rules. There are rules that you set up with people and you set them up during the prep session. And then you talk about the rules again, just before people dive into the medicine. So I'll give you some examples of the rules. Rule number one is you stay in the space. You don't go running out in the street. No, you, and space is defined however you define it, but the room is usually the definition of the space. Maybe an adjoining, an adjoining washroom is part of the space, but, but you define the space very clearly and you make a rule that you don't leave the space until it's over and it ain't over until it's over for everybody. So that's one of the rules, but there are other rules. I, I mentioned before, no sexual touching is one of the rules. So what does that actually mean? What is your understanding? So the guide asked the participant the question, what is your understanding of don't leave the space? What is your understanding of no sexual touching? And, and you kind of go through the rules, but you don't say this is a rule. You say, what is your understanding of this rule? And then you listen to them, and then you have a discussion that they really got it. They really understand the rules. And if they don't understand the rules, you have a problem on your hands. So you need to then stop and say, well, you know, let's, let's talk about that one. So during this, you start by reflecting on what the rules are and having a discussion of their understanding of the rules. And then they take the medicine. And, and mostly you encourage people to be internal. By internal, you, I mean, you know, listening to the music, either with speakers or with headphones on and often with eye shades on. So they're just, they're not engaged with the outside world, they're internal. Sometimes people become external where they take the eye shades off and they don't wanna to listen to music and they wanna engage in a conversation. And that's okay too. Generally people are encouraged to be internal as much as possible. So having some understanding, different medicines are different with the classical psychedelics with LSD and psilocybin, you want people to be more internal more of the time with MDMA and some of the other psychedelics that are more empathogenic, there's more external time where they're engaged in conversation. Essentially, during that process, you're a, a warm, compassionate, secure, trusting, stable, grounded presence. You're just calm and radiating compassion and understanding and, and just support. That's your, that's your main ro role that you play in this space. And sometimes people will ask questions and, and they'll sort of want to engage in conversation. So you do, but you don't, you, don't, you, you don't do the back and forth that a normal therapist would do. You don't engage in a conversation. You don't challenge people and there's none of that. You know, the, you, the, the essential model is I am here to witness your internal healer. I am not the healer, you're the healer and I am here to help guide you as you work with your internal healer. That's the, that's the essential message throughout the whole experience. And as the session unfolds, you're kind of there for people and you, know, you, you, you assist where you need to assist. You know, if they need a drink, you know, you've got your water or your juice and you know, you're kind of thinking about blood sugar issues and you kind of manage that a little bit as well. So you're kind of just the um, compassionate support person who is there when people need you and you reflect stability in times of turbulence. And then towards the end of the session, you, you then can engage in a discussion where, you know, what was that like for you as you're now able to develop the history and you really kind of reflect on the lessons learned. And yes, there were turbulent times and sometimes people will feel quite distressed by the experience but then normalizing the distressing experience and saying that's completely fine, that's okay, and there's lessons to be learned, you know, that's normal, it's not a problem. And so, you know, finding the lesson in distress is part of the process of the end of the experience session. And then seeing them the next day, the integration, what lessons did you learn? How, how are you going to take these lessons into your life? If you're feeling a little um, disoriented still, that's okay, it's not a problem. How do you work with that disorientation? And, and sometimes people feel a little destabilized. And especially if people have a huge trauma history, that destabilization piece is actually not uncommon. And so how, how can you be there for that so they don't go, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm now going crazy. No, you're not going crazy, you're just in this process of transition. This is how it works, this is normal. So again, being reassuring for people who are experiencing that level of experience. And then, 
and then encouraging, you know, how, how are you talking, you know, again, the issue of the importance of context. Who do you have in your life that you're discussing this with? How is that conversation going with you? When you talk to your partner about it, how did he or she respond? You know, was that okay? You know, are you talking to your friends about it? How is that going? You know, are you getting mocked? Are you getting supported? You know, and, and what kind of behavior changes are you making in your life? And probably don't want to make, you know, quit your job the next day. It's probably not a good idea. So, you know, letting people sit with their decisions for a while until their decisions solidify. So not doing immediate actions, but allowing their new wisdom to percolate for a while is an important part of the process. So those are the four stages. And quite frankly, they can repeat themselves. You know, you can um, go through that again multiple times with somebody. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So uh, that is potentially a very expensive process. We're talking about paid sessions in most cases of perhaps a screening session, one or two pre-sessions perhaps, perhaps four hours, maybe even more during the actual day, and then at least one, perhaps more than one follow-up session. This is a process that can get really expensive. And you have actually spoken to me before I've heard you say that one of the solutions to that uh, problem, which is a quite serious problem for a lot of people in terms of affordability, is group ceremony work, that you see this as one of the uh, prime avenues for this kind of work. Obviously, there are going to be some limitations when it's a group rather than this one-on-one -on -one relationship. But in general, could you speak a little bit about what you might see as the pros, cons, and challenges of group ceremonial work with psychedelics? Absolutely. So th there's a kind of a glib response that doesn't work when you really think about it. And the glib response is, well, indigenous people have provided psychedelic experiences in groups for centuries. Why don't we just do it in groups? And then when you actually start looking at the difference between indigenous work and the work that may unfold in Western society, it's a little different. It's not, it's not an easily transferable analogy or, or experience. In traditional indigenous practices, um, all of them happen in group. You know, Kiranderos, Peyote, um, Ayahuasca, all were group experiences. And they happen in community. So they were, they, so essentially you would have your neighbors sitting beside you during this experience. So they were community-based experiences that was there for, you know, celebration of transitions, healing work, spirituality, various different contexts. So in the context of my work, it's different. You know, it, you don't have your neighbors sitting beside you. There's in indigenous work often it's set up. I've never heard anybody say it intentionally, but, but what I see is there isn't any conversation. You know, it's set up to prevent people from self-disclosing. You know, if I think about peyote work, people are chanting and they're engaging in spiritual practices that are ritualistic, but there's no, I'm talking about my feelings. You know, that doesn't happen. <laughs> it doesn't happen in ayahuasca work. It's in, dark, in the dark. There's no eye contact as you're lying down, looking up and listening to various shamanic rituals that are unfolding around you. And the same is true for Kirandera's use of mushrooms. Again, it's, it's done in the context of a ritualistic structure. So there's no self-disclosure, and which makes sense. If you're sitting beside your neighbor, you don't really want to know the troubles that they're having with their daughter or their wife or their parent or whatever. It's, it's just that you don't particularly want to completely open people up in the context of their working with the neighbors, and you're going to have a, a business dealing with the guy across the room the next day. You don't want to know what he's thinking about the challenges of his life. So, in so it's it's just the model that I propose is actually quite different from indigenous models because there's more self-disclosure, and it has to be kind of managed very carefully. Because oh, and also another factor is people don't come to to indigenous circles with you know a single diagnosis, for example. You know they they come just because they they're part of the process but they don't all have the same struggle. In the kind of groups that I would envision, I could see people with depression getting together and having an experience where they have the same experience and quite frankly, they have the same diagnosis and they don't know each other and they won't know each other outside of the context of the group. So really it's just different. And 
I, I think that you have to manage that difference um, skillfully to make it um, something that would be available. But I, I think the indigenous wisdom, if you were going to offer this in the context of just general healing as an experience that you would have in your community, the idea of not having self-disclosure would be important. But if you're gonna offer this in the context of healing for a diagnosis, then you do have to work with it, the process of self-disclosure. So there's a lot of thought that has to go into how you would manage groups. But at the bottom line, I think there are advantages to groups. Groups are less costly by definition. You have more people in a room. There's a, a bonding process that allows you to really connect. And often I'm thinking about depression being a, an experience that is often people are quite alone in, and so they're disconnected. So this is the opportunity to form really healthy connections with a variety of different people. So there's multiple potentials for healing when they're dealing with a diagnosis that's so, so socially isolating. Mm -hmm. And also, quite frankly, I think that it, some practitioners have boundary challenges. And there's more witnesses. When you have many people watching somebody, then the, there's less likelihood of um, boundary challenges going wrong when people are working in the context of group with people. One would hope so, although we do hear about that too, you know, such as uh, Guillermo Arevalo uh, and the issues that happened there. But anyway, that's another story, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, well, uh, I would like to wrap this up soon. I have one more question I would like to ask you. It's perhaps not the most uplifting way to end the interview, but because you've been involved for so long and in such depth with drug policy reform, I wonder, I'm sure you have your ears closely attuned to what's going on now, and I just wonder if you have any thoughts about how you see the legal framework developing, not just in Canada, but in the United States and elsewhere, and uh, if you would say have any advice for anyone who might be watching or listening to this who's involved in that kind of work, like what are the pitfalls or what are the best directions to go in, any, anything that comes to mind? Well, it's an exciting time, honestly. You know, psychedelics are slowly becoming legalized. Mm -hmm. And, you know, essentially the bottom line is don't fuck it up, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know the, the, as we get closer, I think there is also greater risks of us doing it poorly. So to some extent, that's why I wrote the guide, is a cautionary tale about things that can go wrong. So we really need people to be really skillful in how they offer this work to reduce the chance of you know things going wrong and then things that have gone wrong getting into the media and then that becoming a problem for us. So, so partly, I mean, I, I mean, I think that psychedelics, as psychedelics get legalized, you know, we need to kind of stay focused on the evidence. Um, and I think outrageous levels of optimism is often what people feel. And what we need to transmit is cautious optimism. Because, you know, I mean, I, I think um, microdosing is a good example. If people have wild predictions of the success of microdosing, when really there's no evidence for it yet. Um, I don't think that's helpful. So I think being cautious around this thing and being willing to talk about some of the problems that are happening in our community openly, I think is is helpful. And, um, and sticking with the evidence, I think that's also very helpful. Well, Mark, uh, this has been enlightening. I have read the book, so I'm familiar with a lot of these ideas, but I haven't remembered them all. Uh, but I think it's very important material uh, Particularly, you know, as we both know, this work is expanding rapidly. As you say, it's an exciting time. Uh, the, the stigmas and old superstitions are fading away, and there's great potential there. And this is an excellent guide. And as you say, you focused uh, a lot on uh, choosing this word guide. <laughs> so it's a, multi a multifaceted guide, very valuable, very important. And anything that we've talked about or that basically Mark has talked about here, uh, is elaborated on quite a bit in the book. Uh, so if you're not seeing this, if you're listening to it, uh, the book again is called Manual for Psychedelic Guides by Mark Hayden. That's M-A-R-K-H-A-D-E-N with a few other contributors. And it's available on Amazon, probably .com, no doubt. And so, great. Thanks a lot, Mark. Thank you, Stephen. It's a pleasure. Your leadership and your wisdom that you offer our community over all these decades 
is noticed and appreciated. Thank you. Well, kind of you to say so. So thank you. And will you just hang on for a couple of minutes after we formally finish here? Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> Goodbye.